we're going to get started. And um, let me open us in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We um, do pray that you'll help us uh, to care for it um, wisely, knowing that it is the source of life. Help us to be changed by it and to resist the urge to, to change it and to fit it into a, a nice mold that, um, that we can handle or that we can control. Um, Lord, we, we uh, confess that we've done that in the past too often. Help us to approach it in a way that uh, honors you and to uh, seeks to plummet steps uh, for your glory and our growth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there is some background music, so let me turn that off. Okay, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll probably ask that question again. Who here remembers that we were actually doing a Bible interpretation class, right? It's been maybe months, I don't know. It's been, a, it's been quite a long time. Uh, when, when last we left our heroes, um, when last we were talking about the Bible, it was, I believe, did we do the Psalms? Was that the last ones? The Psalms were the last one. We are actually going to skip over uh, prophecy and revelation, the book of Revelation, um, and we're going to only have two more. The Gospels, which was going to be two weeks, is now one week, and Paul will be done next week. Um, well, no, not next week, the week after that. Um, next week is Memorial Day, so we're going we're gonna to pause for that. So um, what you're now having is, is more of a truncated uh, uh, take on this, but I hope it still is helpful. Um, the Gospels, when we come to it, are, I think, one of the more popular books of the Bible to read. This is where we get to encounter Jesus. This is where we get to, uh, uh, to hear s the, the Gospel at its first, the, the positive news. We get to see some of the more familiar stories if we, if we do have familiarity with the Bible. Uh, and yet it's also um, filled with things that surprise us, that don't seem uh, right, that seem a bit strange. And probably the first thing that surprises us when encountering the Gospels is that it's more than one, right? That there are four Gospels. Why does Scripture have four? Um, and what should we do with the fact that there are not just four repetitions of the same thing, uh, but four accounts that have some differences in them? So what do you think? Well, we'll start with that. We'll start priming the pump with uh, the question. What do we do with differences in the Gospels? Um, and especially what might come across as inconsistencies. How do you handle that when you approach it? Yeah, Lisa. Right, right. There's a different perspective, and that might mean different ordering. How about others? Yeah. All right. Yeah.
Yep. So so we she threw out a, a technical term, synoptics. That that stands for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're written in a way that um, that tell the story in very similar ways. John is a bit different. She's saying that there's there's depth to that that we wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah. Good. Okay, so and yeah, in a simple sense, though we don't know any of their audiences, none of them tell us their audience directly. Um, because they're writing to different audiences, we can pick up different, different emphases. But we don't we don't know that per se. <laughs> yeah, and there's debate among that as well. There's there's uh, there is some debate upon. Whether that actually is in that Matthew was to Jewish audience or was to a Gentile audience, um, that's one hypothesis. Yeah, right. So, um, but would that would that give us anything? Would that would that benefit us anything? Even if we did know that. So Jesus has a depth to him that um, at the end of John it says, you know, could fill all the books in the world if we were just to recount the things he's done and said. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's true that we, we shouldn't be intimidated by it. I want this, um, this particular study uh, to, um, to see real practical value in knowing that there are four Gospels, um, not just theological as we we've seen here but real practical like things that we can take home and and work on and do as we study it um but but to get there let's dig in and and see i've included this map here um it is amazing when we have such uh books like the gospels that have had global impact over the centuries to realize that it really only uh encompasses a very small um section of of geography um just a, f- a few things. All four agree on content. As Lisa said, is you know the uh, maybe getting four accounts of one thing. Um, it is astounding to know how much similarity, even though there's differences in presentation, the similarity that all four gospels have, especially compared to something like gospels that were written centuries later. Gospel of Thomas was at the very very earliest that someone might say would be second century, late second century, um, or some of the other Gospels, Gospel of Peter. I mean, you start reading some of them, and you're just like, whoa, that is completely different. The Gospel of Peter has a cross coming out of the tomb, a cross coming out of the tomb, and the cross then sings. You know, Gospel of Thomas is just, you feel like you're reading um, fortune cookies. You know, you read those, and then you read the four Gospels, and it's no doubt that these were together, radically different than others. Please don't buy into a lot of the hubbub that gets out there about these other Gospels that are out there. Guys, there's not many 
none that are written in the first century, as I think any scholar worth his salt would say. Um, and then getting beyond that, seeing the, the harmony that's there is amazing. Um, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, follow the same structure as they, as they talk about Jesus' life and ministry. Um, a great way, it, it's very helpful for me to know this uh, and, and when I read the Gospels, but a great way to read the Gospels is to understand that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have uh, the same structure in that they function in two halves. The first half, really from chapter 1 to 16 in Matthew, 1 to 8 in Mark, 1 to 9 in Luke, with a little bit of, of variation, really just show the early ministry. Um, this is this is his ministry in Galilee, which is up here in the north. Though all those chapters, he doesn't leave Galilee. He just stays up there. You don't see him in Jerusalem at any of that early ministry. And then at that turning point, which is Peter's confession, you are the Christ, and then the transfiguration where Christ takes three apostles on or disciples onto the, the mountain and they see him transfigured, is the turning point. And then after that, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. So the second half of all uh, three synoptic gospels have this road to Jerusalem where he will ta start talking about his death, he'll start unpacking what it means, and then we will see the crucifixion, the resurrection, and, and all the events that surround it. Um, so that's the same structure. John, on the other hand, structures things very differently. He makes three trips into Jerusalem on festivals. It actually, it's only John that we can conjecture that Jesus' ministry was three years because you can actually follow the festivals there. Um, though some would say that the synoptics have the right order of Jesus' ministry, there are people who argue John has the best order, the more accurate order. What's the right answer? <laughs> you guys don't even, I'm afraid to guess. I don't know. Is it yes? Is it no? I mean, the thing, I the, the thing is, we don't have, and we've, we've learned about this before. I think the first lesson we have here when we're looking at a literary approach to the Bible is we do not have anybody saying that um, this is given as a snapshot or a video camera. They all present it as if, uh, just as Lisa said, as any account would give it. They're given an account, and there's theological emphasis on the ordering. Um, so uh, we're, we're not burdened by the question of saying, okay, we have the text. Let's get under the text. Let's get behind the text to the real history. No, God doesn't want us to know the, um, the, the camera view of things because even a camera comes with its own interpretation, right? I mean, you've seen enough police videos to realize that there's a skewed camera perspective on things. Um, we're given God's perspective on these things, and these are, and these are um, the way we're supposed to be able to understand them and interpret them. Um, we shouldn't be surprised at the diversity in this. Luke tells us of such diversity. He'll say, um, this is the very beginning of his gospel, that he's taken a big task to compile all this information about the gospels. Um, and what has he used here? What does it say he's used to compile his gospel? Got eyewitnesses. So, uh, guys, there's an I keep boasting about this book to my wife, um, Jesus Among the Eyewitnesses, a fabulous book by Richard Bauckham. It's pretty heady, but it, it talks about how the New Testament is really um, 
demonstrates eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Um, wonderful account of it. Uh, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who have delivered this to us. Compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Um, he is piecing together uh, as a reporter all the, the facts. He's interviewing people. He's gathering information. Um, you have, in this sense here, some sort of literary dependency. It wouldn't surprise us that uh, Luke used sources. Can, that, can you all see with uh, the letters in that? I realize this is kind of a bad. This says, um, this says M, this says Mark, this says Q, this says L. You all see that? Okay. Um, many people conjecture how this happened. How did we get Matthew and Luke? How were they, they composed? And one theory is that, well, you got some material from Mark that both Matthew and Luke used. Then you got M, which Matthew used, but Luke didn't use. And then you've got Q, who Matthew used and Luke, didn't, and Luke used, but Mark didn't use. And then you got L that Luke used, but Matthew didn't use. Does that make sense? Sounds like a good theory, right? Yeah. Um, now, this isn't, this isn't heretical to say something like this. How do we know? Because Luke says, I've been using sources, right? But it also could have worked like this. Matthew used both Mark and Luke. Or Matthew and Luke both used Mark and Q. Or that um, Luke used both Matthew and Mark and was selective about it. Okay, so you confused yet? The point is, what's the payoff? I mean, you'll hear this a lot, that these sources. But what happens if we go in, what, what's the value of thinking about sources and learning sources? What, what would the payoff be for anybody interested in this? Okay. Different perspectives in that you could find, you could say that there are different perspectives on the, on the cross. Well, we said that anyway, but there's four Gospels, yeah. Credibility, yeah, maybe that they're, they're getting it from somewhere else. But think of the person who's coming with the question, what are these sources? Again, most people that are asking that question want to get beyond or underneath Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not, as they're not asking, okay, so you give me, I've got Luke, but I really want to know the real source, right? I want to know the real thing behind it. Guys, what is inspired in the Gospels we have? When we start conjecturing about sources, we get into all sorts of confused things. Yes, they did use sources, but God inspired their final word, and that's what we have. And so to start slicing them apart or guessing at them um, leads us into bad methods of interpretation. Anybody have any questions about that? It's the same motive that when we read a passage, you're saying, boy, I wonder what Jesus was thinking here. And then build application. Boy, Jesus must have been really sad at this moment. Or he must have been real, you know, start getting into motives of how characters are feeling without Scripture telling us what they are. Try to resist that because you're importing things into the text. You're reading into things that aren't there. We want the, the Scripture to be God's authoritative word, not our own speculation or what we think we might be able to piece together. Um, all right. Um, 
that's, that's sort of understanding the diversity. How can we benefit from the diversity? Well, um, we can compare passages in parallels from other, other Gospels, if they have any. Um, Fee and Stewart, who've written a great book on this, say, we can be fairly sure of each evangelist's interests and concerns by the way that he selects, shapes, and arranges the material. So maybe the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the temple cleansing at the end and John has it at the beginning tells us something significant. More than trying to tell us what is the real history, it's trying to tell us something significant about Jesus. That's not to say it didn't happen. It's just to say, listen to the order and listen to the differences specifically to get the gospel writer's emphasis. What do they want you to know? What does God want you to know through the composition of these gospels? That's the question that we ask. Um, do not attempt to fill out the story in your passage from details from another. I know this is hard, right? We read one gospel and you're like, wow, I want to get the full picture of this. So let me read the same account in Luke and, and uh, Mark. And what do you wind up with? Kind of a hodgepodge. Has anybody ever read a harmony of the gospels like that? It can really be confusing, right? While sometimes it's helpful to get the structure of it, you'll wind up with a really muddled message. Um, so avoid trying to fill in the details from going from gospel to gospel. If your passage is not in the other gospels, consider what that might mean to your gospel, the one you're reading, especially in relation to the major themes of your gospel in the immediate context. If that's there and the others don't have it, pay attention. He's putting it in there for a reason. Compare word choice to discover differences. Um, compare context to determine unique ordering of your passage that might give you insights into the author's intention. These guys are brilliant. The more I study it, the more I realize that the gospel writers are brilliant. And so the subtle changes they bring in from one account, if you read in light of the other gospels, will start to make their message clear. They'll start to bring out things that we would otherwise say, all right, I want to get this meta picture of it, um, so let me, let me forget that. Um, no, it's, it's supposed to be really important to see the differences. And look for themes and theological message rather than attempt to reconstruct the historical Jesus. Um, so paying attention to the themes. We're going to end on the themes for each as they're seen. Um, so jump in with questions as, as you guys feel like you need to on this. I know some of it is repeat, but some of it's new. Um, the uniqueness of this. What is a gospel? What would you say a gospel is? What, what kind of literature is it? Okay, biographical, right? So part of it's biographical. Um, what ways is it not biography? It's biographical. So, yeah, open-ended question, right? Yeah. Um, bio it's biography, certainly, in that it tells his, his life. But there's parts of which, if we read it like a biography, it would be misleading. In biographies, what can we do with the, the biography when we read uh, a someone, read a biography of Abraham Lincoln? He was, he was a great man. When you're reading that biography, what happens to you? Y you might enjoy it. 
You might dislike it, depending on what you think about Lincoln. It might warm your heart. It might even inspire you. But what it doesn't do is confront you. The gospel isn't a biography. It's got biographical elements, but it's not a biography because it's not to be read detached. It's not to be read as as something that happened 2,000 years ago and that the life of Jesus. It's directed to you. If you call yourself a Christian, then the gospel is something that is is, uh, in many ways confronting you, challenging you, offering you hope. It's directed to you. Okay, a case for Christ. A gospel is a case for Christ in that his identity, his purpose, his, um, you know, what his, uh, what his relevance is to our life, certainly. Um, how, yes, sir, so how about history? What if we treated, um, what if we treated it like a history? Jesus' identity uh, could be defined by his example or his teaching and not his role in the world or for the world as Savior and Lord. This is getting to Dick's point, that if we just saw him as a teacher um, or even as an example, we wouldn't get challenged by the fact that, no, he's Savior, and not just Savior generally, but your Savior. How would we... um, how would our reading of the Gospels change if we viewed it as a spiritual self-help guide? If we saw that as the Gospels? Well, if we saw it just as a self-help guide, then we'd see the historical and biblical content, uh, the big story, as unimportant. Why in the world are are we having all these details about Pharisees and Sadducees? Why would we have this stuff about the law and about these teachings? I mean, let's get to the kernel of what this is all about and let's take off the husk. Um, if we read it as a spiritual self-help, then most of the content of the Gospels wouldn't make any sense to us. Um, judgment, conflict, miracles, the crucifixion, the resurrection, they wouldn't appear to be relevant at all to us. What would we want? We'd want, we'd op- want to open up the Gospels and it'd say, don't be anxious because this is how you solve anxiety in your life. Or we want to say, we, we'd read it and say, oh, here's Jesus' nice teaching about forgiving people and being a good person and living a happy life. No, this is going to tell, tell you a story. In many ways, it's a story much bigger than you. And to get the gospel, you have to be incorporated into it and challenged by it, not see it as something you can use. All right. um, yeah, Rico, do you have something like that? Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the gospel as a message, yes. The gospels as a genre, um, they're, they're useful for that as well. And it's easy for us, I think, because of the genre, uh, and this is really what this study is, is a genre study, it's very easy for us to get sidetracked and expect it to be something other than this is who Jesus is as Lord and Savior. He's confronting you with this, not simply standing abstractly as it. If you treat it like a history, if you treat it like a biography, even if you treat it as a self-help, you will misunderstand it. And you will see our next section as completely irrelevant. Stop wasting our time with history.
right? I don't need enough of this bigger story. Just give me what I need to do and how, how I need to live. Um, but I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey through what's called eschatology. And I do this um, not to overwhelm you with big words. <laughs> eschatology means last things, but to, to state a central theme throughout the Bible that if we don't grasp where it is at the time of Jesus, we're going to misunderstand Jesus and we're going to misunderstand the Gospels, right? If we don't get the general expectation of the end of the world or the end of time that the Old Testament has, then we are going to completely misunderstand what Jesus says about himself and how, how he speaks about the kingdom of God in particular. Does that all make sense? Okay, so let's, let's think about this, this rather big term in light of the Gospels. What does the word gospel mean? It has to be understood in light of, of our future hope. Can somebody read this passage from Isaiah? Isaiah 40? Yeah, so the word gospel means good news. What is implied in Isaiah's prophecy about this? What is the good news? Okay, well, so part of it is, is heralding this. Oh, yeah, sorry, I got to, had to include the other part, Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the, feet, uh, uh, upon the mountain of the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. All right? What is the gospel according to Isaiah? Salvation, yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's a coming of God, right? It's God's coming. And how is he coming? Yes, not as the self-help person, not even as the I'm going to solve your, your personal sin problem, okay? I, yes, there is the truth to that. But if we think of the gospel only as what appears in a track of how to become a Christian, um, we'll have a very small view of what God comes to do. He comes to reign. He comes as king. He comes as your king. Publish salvation. Publish the good news. Say to Zion, your God reigns. This is why when the gospel is preached, the other word that gets used by Jesus in particular is kingdom. Reigning of God. He comes as a king. That's the expectation that starts here. That was the gospel to Israel. How about the gospel to Rome? This was found in 9 BC in an inscription in Asian Minor. Um, can someone read that? Thank you.
Glad tidings is another word for gospel. What's the gospel to Rome? Nine years before Jesus, or 12 years, 15 years, depending on who you talk to. What's the gospel to Rome? The emperor, right, what? Has come, and what does he come to do? Bring salvation, right? He's bringing salvation. The Savior, God. Guys, when we're reading the gospel, this is all in the cultural milieu. It's all in the air. It's all what people are seeing here. The Jewish understanding through Isaiah and prophecy, gospel is the Lord reigning, coming up against the empire that has now encompassed Israel in the promised land. It, it, Israel is part of the Roman Empire. Now they're hearing that's the other gospel. Augustus is the, is the reigning Lord here. Um, let's go back a little bit further in the Bible to think about this concept of the day of the Lord. Um, this is all the background to understand uh, eschatology. What did Israel hear um, when it hoped for the day of the Lord? Uh, I'm going to fly through this really quickly, but just to show us, um, Genesis 2, humanity has the, um, the command to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the, uh, uh, or sorry, they eat, of the, eat of the tree, every tree except for the, the fruit of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Um, in that day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now what happens after they eat it? Well, spiritual death comes in, but in some sense, judgment was delayed. It's still present, um, but Adam died, but there's still this sense in which there will be a final judgment day. Humanity gets exiled from the garden, symbolizing our state and our distance from God, but holding out for all of humanity a day that will come where judgment will happen. Adam and Eve have kids. They start to multiply um, and then sort of right after this, God gives a promise. I will put enmity between you and, your, and the woman, your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, again, giving this future promise that somehow the seed of the woman will uh, come into conflict with Satan at some later date. Genesis 3, very shortly after this, continuing this promise, Eve is called the, the mother of the living. This promise that there will be living at the end and some, again, some future promise. This shows that there's hope in a promise to come and God will give further light. He provides uh, the skin sacrifice of the animals to, to cover their shame. And then in Genesis 3.21, um, the Lord God made Adam and Eve garments of skin to cover them. All right, so that, that sets up. There will be this sort of future seed that comes. Then we see it get explained a little further now in Genesis 12, a promise made to Abraham that, um, that God would one day uh, bless him and his descendants, and he shall make his descendants um, greater, a great nation. Um, the promised land gets entered in here as, a, as another Eden, as a return to that. And 
Abraham's offspring receives this blessing by faith, um, but it will then benefit all the, the families of the earth. Fast forward a few hundred years and we get um, Moses. Moses set apart a whole nation to be different, and God makes this promise, this promise now residing in this, in this, um, in this covenant people that if they obey, they will be blessed, and if they disobey, they will be cursed, um, bringing this sense of um, Israel itself almost plays this role of if they do well, they're going to prosper and have a blessing, and if they um, disobey, they'll have judgment, um, mirroring what it was like in the garden. Obedience brings reward. Disobedience brings judgment. All of this... Um, gives this, this great picture of what Israel is doing, how they're, they're uh, to be sort of thinking about their own identity. The temple gets put out there as uh, this ongoing sense, this ongoing reminder that they've fallen short, that they need a sacrifice, but this ongoing reminder of the presence of God. And now they're giving this sense that um, a king will come and, and the promise given to, to David that an offspring shall come and establish his kingdom forever. All those things look sort of pointing forward to a future hope that God would redeem. He will continue this temple. He will continue this king. He will continue this people. And then all of a sudden, and not all of a sudden, over the course of centuries, it comes to a screeching halt where Israel's sin has completely driven them off the rails. All the markers of their hope start falling away. Their temple is demolished. Their king is sacked and brought off to another land. The people themselves, the nation, is dispossessed, taken out of the promised land and brought into exile. All of this is giving one huge message to the people of God. And it's, what in the world are we up to? What, what, is God, what does God have left for us? Um, where is hope in this? It seems completely um, taken out. And then the prophets begin their ministry. Isaiah through Malachi, they try to minister to God's people in light of this, in light of this crisis. Um, some argue that this crisis is present all the way through the books of Deuteronomy, um, through 2 Samuel, there in First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, even the Psalms understand this crisis. Where's the hope in God's promise? Where's Genesis 3.15 that the seed will come ultimately? Um, it is at, at the darkest day during this exile. And then we get Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, no, light will come. There will be hope. Hold on, there will be promise. There'll be, um, you know, foreigners shall build your walls up. Kings shall minister to you. People, the wealth of nations will come to you. Saying this in the midst of what seems to be hopelessness, Jeremiah will then say, How long will this uh, last? When will it come? Seventy years are completed for Babylon, and I will visit you, and I will fulfill the promise and bring you back. So, about 500 years before Jesus, 400 and change, 
God gives the promise to say, in 70 years, I will, I will return. Okay, 70 years happens, and it's gone. There's nothing. Daniel comes in and says, I perceived the books of the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord, the, to the prophet Jeremiah, must pass before the end of desolation, namely 70 years. 70 years are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone uh, for iniquity and to bring everlasting righteousness. Sorry, I misspoke. Seventy sevens. Seventy sevens. So there's a sense in which it's not seven years, but closer to 500 years. Um, And you don't think there's a, a necessary quibbling about the exact year, but it's roughly saying from the time of Daniel to the time of Christ, Jesus is saying, or God is saying through, through Daniel, there's going to be a huge period of time here now until this comes. Amos, um, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Um, it is not the day of, of uh, is it not the day of darkness and not light uh, and gloom with no brightness? Isaiah 2, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty. Joel 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do you see in, that, in those pictures of the day of the Lord? Well, you see both a mixture of judgment and blessing, destruction and salvation. And so as the Old Testament ends, there's roughly 400 years of silence, and the expectation is that some day of the Lord is going to happen that's both a mixture of blessing and destruction, judgment and salvation are kind of all tied up there. Guys, I know that's a lot. I know it's a quick view through all the books of the Old Testament, but what it does is set you up for the expectation that happens when the gospel arrives, when we get to Jesus. If you don't get this, you're going you're to misunderstand how they interact, with how Jesus and his disciples interact with, um, with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why are they so upset with Jesus? And what are they hoping for? Um, First century expectation is that there's going to be some restoration. That the nation will come, the temple and the king will come. This is what the Pharisees would expect. Um, that's at one level. At, two, at the second level, um, things that, that symbolize restoration will be there through the disciples. They'll see God's promises of salvation, and that's why they're keyed in on Jesus and, and his offer of hope. But then Jesus sees, you know, honestly, behind all of this, the bigger picture is sin, and that needs to get dealt with. And so that, that is really framing his ministry. His, his uh, Gospel of Mark begins in chapter 1, really saying, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. What's the message? How does the Gospel of Mark begin? Jesus coming, with God coming to bring this way of salvation. How does um, Jesus' first sermon? It's Isaiah 61. Good news coming to the poor. This is it in, um, in Luke 4. Jesus reads this scroll of the good news of salvation, the day of the Lord coming. He then sits down and says, this is now fulfilled in your presence. The kingdom of God has come. 
at the very beginning of Mark, again, John is arrested. He's saying, what's going on here? It looks like our people are losing. And he says, look, know that I'm the right one because of the miracle. The time is fulfilled for the kingdom of God to come. Repent. The gospel is at hand. All right. Demons, miracles, these are all signs that, um, that what Christ is, is coming and doing is actually um, changing the world, not simply forgiving sins. Um, trying to squish all this in here, but if we were to look at an Old Testament expectation of the end times, it would look like this first circle. It would seem like one event where what the blessing and the cursing, the judgment and the salvation are all together. But what happens when we see Jesus' ministry is that part of it comes now, and yet part of it will come again. There will be a now and a not yet. Jesus will fulfill his role as king, and yet the enemies are not immediately destroyed. The nations will come to this kingdom, as we see, even in Jesus' ministry, other people will start to come to him. And yet the kingdom will seem small and weak in worldly eyes. Um, Jesus suffers as a suffering servant. And yet final, he'll come in glorification um, with praise. Spiritual new life and new creations already at work in your life. The resurrection and new creation is to come. God is with us now. Um, ultimately, heaven will come to earth freedom and bo from bondage of sin now, ultimate freedom and new life to come. All right. All of this is the big setup um, to, to the Gospels. It is the overview of uh, the Old Testament and the end times and is setting up exactly the good news Jesus has. I'm going to uh, finish this, actually getting into the parables and uh, the structure of each Gospel next week. We'll do that, do a bit of Paul, um, but as Anne, any any questions on that? Yeah, Rico. Yeah. Well, before you before you do that, I'll get back to you. But any any questions on this? Okay. Yeah, I, I know if if you don't get this understanding of uh, eschatology in the kingdom, most of the gospels is gonna is gonna fly right by. We're not gonna be able to grasp and understand it. All right. Yeah, Rico. Pray, be praying for you, Rico. All right, food has arrived. Kids have arrived. Um, let me.